Poland and the free world cannot afford not to send uh, leopard tanks and not to send modern weapon uh, to Ukraine. And Poland should know. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Groves, KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lanchester, Pennsylvania on W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square, Radio Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. So, hey, Desi Doyen. Hey. Do you, do you know what time it is? Uh, well, what as, time would you like it well, to be? As, well, as we begin today's broadcast, don't answer it, in fact, because I know many of our affiliates play the program at different times of the day. Folks listen via podcast, etc., anytime that they want. So it was a trick question. It was sort of a trick question <laughs> because for all of those all of those listeners and for all of us here at the broadcast, as we begin today's program, it is actually uh, the same time for all of us. What time is that? 90 seconds to midnight. Now, that, of course, is a proverbial midnight and, frankly, a chilling one for humanity as, once again, cited this week by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists who have moved the world's so-called doomsday clock closer to midnight. This week... Closer now than the metaphorical clock has ever been to midnight before since its introduction in the early hours of the Cold War back in 1947 as a way to convey how close humanity was and is to destroying itself. According to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists press release this week, helpfully issued this year, by the way, in English, Russian, and Ukrainian, the doomsday clock was set at 90 seconds to midnight, due largely but not exclusively to Russia's invasion of Ukraine 
and the increased risk of nuclear escalation. The new clock time was also influenced by continuing threats posed by the climate crisis, they write, and the breakdown of global norms and institutions needed to mitigate risks associated with advancing technologies and biological threats such as COVID-19. Rachel Bronson, Ph.D., president and CEO of Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, said, quote, We are living in a time of unprecedented danger, and the doomsday clock time reflects that reality. Ninety seconds to midnight is the closest the clock has ever been set to midnight. And it's a decision our experts do not take lightly, she said. The U.S. government, its NATO allies, and Ukraine have a multitude of channels for dialogue. We urge leaders to explore all of them to their fullest ability to turn back the clock. And while I agree, of course, with uh, uh, Dr. Brunson there, I would also add that the Russian government has the ability to turn back the clock by simply leaving the sovereign nation that they brutally invaded. There, that was easy. (laughs) I saved the world. The doomsday clock, the uh, press release continues, is set by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Science and Security Board, with the support of the Bulletin's Board of Sponsors, which includes 10 Nobel laureates. Previously, the doomsday clock had been set at 100 seconds to midnight, That is where it had stood since 2020. The Doomsday Clock statement explains that, quote, Russia's war on Ukraine has raised profound questions about how states interact, eroding norms of internal uh, international conduct that underpin successful responses to a variety of global risks and, worst of all, Russia's thinly veiled threats to use nuclear weapons remind the world that escalation of the, of the conflict by accident, intention, or miscalculation is a terrible risk. The possibility, they note, that the conflict could spin out of anyone's control remains high. Russia has also brought its war to the Chernobyl and Zaporizhia nuclear reactor sites, violating international protocols and risking widespread release of radioactive materials. Efforts by the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, to secure these plants so far have been rebuffed by Russia. The uh, bulletin notes, quote, the statement has been translated into Ukrainian and Russian. I hope they're all reading it. Mary Robinson, chair of the elders and former U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, said, quote, the doomsday clock is is sounding an alarm for the whole of humanity. We are on the brink of a precipice. Can you be on the brink of a precipice? Of course. Okay. Seems like when you're on the brink, you're actually at the precipice. But all oh, right, I anyway, see. I uh, get you. <laughs> she, she says uh, our leaders are not acting at sufficient speed or scale to secure a peaceful and livable planet. From cutting carbon emissions to strengthening arms control treaties and investing in pandemic preparedness, we know what needs to be done. The science is clear, but the political will is lacking. This must change in 2023 if we are to avert catastrophe. We are facing multiple existential crises. Leaders need a crisis mindset, she notes. And finally, one more statement that I will note from Ban Ki-moon. 
He's the deputy chair of the elders and a former uh, secretary general of the United Nations. He said, quote, three years ago, I helped unveil the doomsday clock when its hands were last moved. Today, they are even closer to midnight, showing how much more perilous our world has become in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, extreme weather events and Russia's outrageous war on Ukraine. Leaders did not heed the doomsday clock clocks warning in warnings in 2020 we all continue to pay the price in 2023 it is vital for all our sakes that they act so yep it's another sunshine day here on the bradcast <laughs> well i will say that there are some who have uh, criticized the doomsday clock concept as a cold war relic and you know what does it matter who cares who makes these decisions well now we do know who makes these decisions it's mm-hmm. you know eminent scientists and mm-hmm. and folks from around the world who have deep experience in geopolitics mm-hmm. But it's also, as the bulletin in themselves explains, that it's intended to spark discussion mm. on addressing these global problems. So even if it feels like, well, you know, what difference does it make? We're talking about it. And that's the whole point. Yeah, I think that is the whole point. I think that's a, a, a good point to make. And the idea that it's a Cold War relic, you know, they have not <laughs> they're not just talking about. Uh, nuclear issues, which remain a problem right. from the Cold War, but they're also adding, obviously, the pandemic, obviously, climate uh, change. And Russia with the Cold uh, and, War basically rearing back war. up Yeah, again. exactly. So, yeah, uh, you know, whether our, our leaders actually uh, heed these warnings, well, that remains the uh, continuing question, probably the question for the ages. I am happy to say that at least when it comes to the climate, some of our leaders here in the U.S. have indeed acted. Not enough. But they have acted as of last year with the passage of uh, a record-breaking investment to fight and or survive our climate crisis in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the largest single investment in climate by any nation in history, I think by any entity, in fact, in history. Uh, and, And it was passed, sadly enough, by all of the Democrats in Congress, by none of the Republicans in Congress, and it was signed by a Democratic president. But we are already beginning to see uh, encouraging news on that front. And, Desi, you uh, note as much in today's Green News report coming up a little bit later, which also touches on the doomsday clock. But I have to note this response to the uh, new time setting for the doomsday clock this week from, yes... Russia. (laughs) The Kremlin said the doomsday clock moving closer to midnight is, quote, really alarming. (laughs) Really? Is it? Is it alarming, Russia? Is it really? You are alarmed by it, are you? It's really alarming as uh, it's the closest point it's been thus far to worldwide destruction amid ongoing international tensions stemming in no small part from Russia's war with Ukraine. But really, Russia, you are alarmed by it. And uh, you do know that you, more than any single entity in the world right now, have the greatest power and ability to actually do something about what you are so alarmed about. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told reporters on Wednesday that de-escalation does not appear to be on the horizon, blaming policies from the U.S. and NATO allies in supporting Ukraine, that according to the Russian state-run news agency TASS. 
So I see. If if the U.S. and NATO just weren't supporting Ukraine, well, Russia could have, you know, marched into its sovereign neighbor and replaced its democratic government with its own autocratic puppet government by now, and we wouldn't be having all of these problems, I guess. Clearly, U.S. and NATO are to blame for helping a sovereign nation defend themselves from an imperialist invader. How dare the U.S. and NATO do that? And yeah, I, I, I know that the U.S. is, you know, traditionally the imperialist invader of sovereign nations in these things in recent years. But guess what? Not this time for a pleasant change. According to Peskov, quote, on the whole, the situation is really alarming. He said the international community needs to look closely at where tensions stand and be, quote, particularly attentive, vigilant and responsive and to take appropriate measures to respond. Which, by the way, Mr. Peskov, they are. They are helping, helping to defend a sovereign nation from your brutal attack and your seemingly endless war crimes. And, you know, if, if you really wanted the inter international community to look closely at where tensions stand, perhaps you should have taken your complaints to the U.N. about those tensions rather than turning to bullets and bombs aimed at a country that posed zero, zero, no threat to you at all. And in not unrelated matters this past week, you heard the Polish president at the top of the program there. That was Mateusz Morawiecki. Forgive my botched pronunciation. Uh, but that was the Polish president discussing how Poland, Ukraine's immediate neighbor to its west, cannot afford to not give modern tanks to Ukraine Right now, given both Russia's history and Poland's all too great historical familiarity with it. Here's a bit more of the Polish president's statement. Prime Minister. Uh, Prime Minister, thank you, uh, on that matter this week. Poland and the free world cannot afford not to send uh, leopard tanks and not to send modern weapon uh, to Ukraine because the Kremlin and the Russians, whom we know very, very well, not only from our history, but they are our neighbors for more than 1,000 years, and we, uh, we know their recent behavior, and we know how they act. The, um, the minute they attacked Georgia, they looked for another prey. The minute they attacked Ukraine, they looked for another face to, uh, to attack. So as a Polish uh, prime minister, and by the way, I know that uh, there's a lot of folks probably listening to me now that uh, disagree with me, and I will speak to that momentarily. My email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. But Poland, of course, they are situated on the western border of Ukraine. If Putin's uh, Russian Empire succeeds in its attack on its sovereign neighbor Ukraine and replaces its democratically elected government with a brutal Russian authoritarianism or anything else, there, there is no reason to think that they won't then march straight into Poland next. As Russian uh, uh, President Vladimir Putin has long discussed his interest in reconstituting the old Soviet Union. So, yes, uh, Poland has a reason to be concerned about everything that is going on. And they have a reason 
to help their sovereign neighbor of Ukraine by uh, supplying them with uh, tanks and so forth, as they announced this week. Also this week, in also related news, as I suspect you have heard by now, President Joe Biden announced on Wednesday that the U.S. will send 31 M1 Abrams battle tanks to Ukraine. The U.S. decision came on the heels of Germany agreeing to send 14 Leopard 2 tanks from its own stocks, according to AP. Germany had uh, said that the Leopards would not be sent unless the U.S. put its Abrams on the table, not wanting to incur Russia's wrath without the U.S. similarly committing its own tanks. Tanks for nothing. <laughs> Biden said uh, that in uh, in total, uh, European allies uh, have all agreed now to send enough tanks to equip two Ukrainian tank battalions or a total of about 62 tanks. Now, in truth, when all of the tanks from all of these uh, nations are actually added up that are now being sent, these modern battle tanks are now being sent to Ukraine, there is actually... Uh, more like hundreds of such tanks that are being sent for all of the uh, various allies who are supporting Ukraine's self-defense of its own nation. Altogether, France, the UK, the US, Poland, Germany, the Netherlands and Sweden will send hundreds of tanks and heavy armored vehicles to fortify Ukraine as it enters a new phase of the war and attempts to break through entrenched Russian lines. Here are some of Biden's thoughts on the matter during his announcement about all of this at the White House on Wednesday. The United States, standing shoulder to shoulder with allies and partners, is going to continue to do all we can to support Ukraine. Putin expected Europe and the United States to weaken our resolve. He expected our support for Ukraine to crumble with time. He was wrong. He was wrong. And he was wrong from the beginning and he continues to be wrong. We are united. America's united, and so is the world. And we approach the one-year mark as we do of the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We remain united and determined, as ever, in our conviction and our cause. These tanks are further evidence of our enduring, unflagging commitment to Ukraine and our confidence in the skill of the Ukrainian forces. As I told President Zelensky when he was here, and today's his birthday, by the way, in December, We're with you for as long as it takes, Mr. President. Ukrainians are fighting an age-old battle against aggression and domination. It's a battle Americans have fought proudly time and again. And it's a battle we're going to make sure the Ukrainians are well-equipped to fight as well. This is about freedom. Freedom for Ukraine. Freedom everywhere. It's about the kind of world we want to live in, the world we want to leave to our children. So may God protect the brave Ukrainian defenders of their country keep the flame of liberty burning brightly as we can. Thank you. And by the way, I do believe this is about freedom. I do believe this is about the flame of liberty. I do believe this is about democracy and not in the way George W. Bush used to pretend that his war on you on, on Iraq was oh, all about freedom and liberty. <laughs> it wasn't. This is. The uh, president, President Biden, went out of his way to argue that this initiative to uh, send these uh, tanks to Ukraine should not be regarded as an offensive escalation against Russia. That's what this is about, helping Ukraine defend and protect Ukrainian land. It is not an offensive threat to Russia. 
We are, there is no offensive threat to Russia. If Russia troops return to Russia, where, where they belong, this war would be over today. And that is 100% true. And that's why, you know, it drives me nuts. I hear from, I know there's a lot of folks who, who, who listen uh, to this program who probably disagree with me on some of these points. We hear from some of them when I'm able to open up the phones on this, uh, on this matter. And I'm always happy to have the discussion. I'm happy to, you know, receive the emails. But uh, the fact of the matter is, if, you know, you want this war to end as I do, as I think we all do, well, one of the two countries who are directly involved in it, Russia and Ukraine, just one of them could end it tomorrow by leaving. And it's over. And yet so many are uh, angry at Ukraine because they're defending themselves at the U.S., at uh, Europe for helping them to defend themselves from an invading neighbor. So, yeah, I believe Joe Biden is correct there. When he says, uh, you know, if Russian troops return to Russia where they belong, this war would be over today. And yet, you know, when I hear from listeners uh, that uh, U.S. should be demanding a ceasefire and negotiations and not helping Ukraine to defend itself, uh, you know, if that were the case, if we didn't help Ukraine defend itself, Ukraine would have been rolled over months ago. So to blame Ukraine for wanting to defend itself and its homeland and its people, rather than calling on the one party who could end this war tomorrow, Russia, who could simply leave, uh, this seems a, a bit actually very misguided to me. And again, I know a lot of you folks may disagree with me who, you know, who view Russia's war on Ukraine very differently than I do. Because I do hear from you via email, and I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Once again, happy to hear from you. But while you're welcome to write in, allow me to assure you, before you do, I am very familiar with the history of all of this and the U.S.-NATO role in all of this, at least the perceived role in all of this, over the, in years past. And in fact, I was very sympathetic to those concerns and worried about all of that and what you, you, the U.S. and NATO were doing in Europe for many years, as we reported, even in the run up to the Russian uh, uh, to Russia's invasion. I think right up to the day before that invasion, in fact, I have not been a Russia hawk. And in fact, I opposed people like uh, Hillary Clinton. You, you may recall I was in other Democrats who for years were, you know, thumping their chests against Russia and Vladimir Putin and calling him a dictator and this and all of that. And yes, he may be a dictator. But do we really need that in a presidential candidate to be uh, pounding their chest, uh, you know, against another, well, nuclear armed power? But, uh, you know, the minute that the tanks rolled in and the launches, the, the uh, rockets launched into Ukraine on February 24, 2022, as far as I'm concerned, Vladimir Putin lost whatever moral high ground that he might, might have had up to that point. I should note one of the things that, you know, many seeming supporters of Russia's position here 
and opponents of the U.S. and Europe helping out Ukraine to defend itself. Uh, one of those things that many of those folks seem to conveniently forget, or maybe, I don't know, maybe they have not been told about this by those who are out there actively forwarding Russian propaganda on all of this. But uh, have you heard of the Budapest Memorandum? That's the 1994 post-Cold War agreements, including by Russia, to guarantee the security and the sovereignty, the sovereign borders of Ukraine. Back in 1994, Russia agreed to provide security to Ukraine to make sure their borders would remain intact. That, in exchange for uh, Ukraine destroying and or turning over all of its nuclear weapons to Russia. Now, at the time, Ukraine, as, uh, as a nation, actually had the third largest supply of nuclear weapons in the world. And so uh, the Budapest agreements between Ukraine, Russia, the U.S., and, and, U- and the U.K. guaranteed that nobody, including Russia, would be allowed to ever violate Ukraine's borders. Now, I don't hear a lot of the uh, uh, you know, folks who are repeating, and I know it's a coincidence that it just happens to be the very same things that the Kremlin is saying about this, uh, that they're repeating the very same things. That is, in fact, Russia propaganda. But uh, so a lot of those people who are unhappy with how the U.S. and Europe are handling this matter, they like to you know, cite a, a vague and frankly somewhat misunderstood claim that NATO vowed that it would never expand eastward uh, with new countries joining the alliance after the Cold War. That's not exactly what happened either. And I'm not going to go into the uh, details now. But in any event, I just want to let you know, I am well aware of the history and I had been uh, none too happy with much of U.S. behavior in recent years in regard to Russia. But once Russia invaded, once they became war criminals, well, I was, as I have said, anti-war against the U.S.'s grotesque imperial attack on sovereign Iraq. And I remain anti-war today during Russia's grotesque imperial attack against its sovereign neighbor, Ukraine. I think it's a pretty consistent uh, position. And yes, I remain anti-war. That doesn't mean that uh, I believe countries should be able to roll over other countries and those countries should not be able to defend themselves. So anyway, I I didn't mean to go into this one so deeply today. (laughs) Well, I I just want to underscore your points that nobody and nobody, I mean nobody, forced Russia to drive its tanks across Ukraine's sovereign border. Nobody forced Russia to bomb civilians and their homes and their infrastructure, which are war crimes. Nobody forced Russia to commit war crimes. If they had a problem, like you said, go to the U.N. uh, Security Council and make that problem known there. And if you're against imperialism when the U.S. does it, then you ought to be, for intellectual consistency, you ought to be against it when Russia does it. Yeah, it's amazing to me to see these folks who... I, uh, many of whom I have uh, I've liked and respected over the years as, you know, great anti-war uh, people, anti-imperialists, somehow finding themselves on the wrong side of history here. 
Anyway, like I said, didn't mean to go into that one uh, <laughs> quite as deeply as that today. I'll hold it there for now. Uh, but but there you go. And, and and to hear Russia declare to the world that they are alarmed, that's really what set me off. I was actually going to mention the doomsday story as a, as a nice tease for your Green News report a little mm-hmm. bit later, Desi Doyen. But boy, when I saw Russia saying, oh, we are really alarmed by this. Are you kidding me? It, the reason the doomsday clock is moving closer to midnight is because of their unbridled aggression. So all I can say is, Russia, please. <laughs> all right, let's take a quick break here. We will come back with some uh, domestic electoral politics today, including, uh, yep, an election from last November whose results have recently been flipped due to, uh, wait for it, you'll never guess, computer voting system failures, which named a winner to be a loser and vice versa. That's still ahead on today's broadcast with Desi's GNR as well. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation. But, of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, they've all come to look for America. You know, I think it's... Possible they may be more accurate in counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike <laughs> than they are in counting votes in the great state of New Jersey. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was quite a segue to justify well, playing Simon and Garfunkel. Well, it's true. <laughs> well, just wait till you hear. You know, if you've listened to this program for any amount of time, and I hope you have, uh, especially just before or after elections, when we report on election results. You have no doubt heard my repeated warnings, probably drove you crazy, uh, when discussing results, when I say something along the lines of, well, these results are, uh, please note, they're only reported by computers at this time. They have yet to be verified in any way, shape, or form by actual humans. And that, you know, problems, I warn, with election results or, um, you know, at the polling place, sometimes do not come to life to light until days or weeks or even months after elections. I always say that I'm sure it drives everybody crazy. They're sick of hearing that. But I want to give you that warning because guess what? It's true. And I've got a perfect example of that for you today, which just showed up uh, last week, uh, though I have not been able to get to it now regarding the election Last November, the 2022 elections in November, the midterm elections, and we've only found out about a problem with an election and the results of that election within this past week. How many months are we? Almost three months later. Yeah. So this is from the New Jersey Globe, 
a possible malfunction of the vote tabulation system in Monmouth County, New Jersey, led to the double counting of votes in six voting districts in four municipalities and appears to change the outcome of a school board race in Ocean Township. Election Systems and Software, or ESNS, my favorite voting system company, uh, that's Monmouth County's voting machine vendor, their private vendor. It's also the largest such vendor in, in the nation. ESNS has acknowledged an error in their vote tabulation system that caused irregularities that were not discovered until an unrelated issue caused the Board of Elections to launch an internal investigation. That, according to an election official who spoke on the condition of anonymity. And this, of course, remains both my worst nightmare and why I always try to qualify my coverage of election results with the phrase, according to the computer tabulators or some such. And why I always try to note that none of the reported results had actually yet been verified by human beings and that many, if not most of them, never actually would be verified by any human beings. We simply have to take the computer's word for it in almost all cases, in almost all elections in these United States. Because election officials don't want to take the time and money to have human beings verify the machine tally. Well, and I'm not even going to blame it on election officials. It may be regular elected officials who don't want to invest the time and the money uh, in doing that. But the point is, we don't do it. In the vast majority of elections, I'd say pretty much every single one of them, we don't do any real post-election audits that would determine whether the computers counted the ballots correctly or incorrectly. And uh, those computers, by the way, you know, we, we just take their word for it that these results are correct. But those computers can be programmed incorrectly on purpose or simply by accident, which is, as I said, my worst nightmare that, you know, nobody is nefariously trying to game an election, but they accidentally do in their programming of the ballot for that particular race. They can also be hacked, of course. And without counting the ballots by hand, ultimately, there is essentially no way to know one way or another whether the results are accurate. As noted, uh, in this case, the inaccurate results were only noticed accidentally. The company, ESNS, called the issue, quote, an isolated incident that occurred due to a human procedural error, an audit of the system yielded this information. Okay, fine. But what if that system hadn't been audited in any way and this problem discovered as it was weeks later? Most systems and most election results are not actually audited. In the six voting districts, so-called fail-safes in the tabulation software, as described by the New Jersey Globe, failed and some results were counted twice possibly a result of work by the vendor that was completed incorrectly. 
So when ESNS calls it human error, they don't say it was our human <laughs> error, but whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, company spokesperson Katina Granger said, quote, in July of 2022, upon request, ESNS technicians were sent to Monmouth County to investigate reports of slow performance on the county's internal network. During troubleshooting, technicians uninstalled and reinstalled the county's election management software. That's the software that I always warn you about that is so sensitive and contains a Essentially, the keys to the kingdom when it comes to elections. That's the software that Republican Trump supporters after the 2020 election essentially broke into in a number of states around the country in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania and so forth and made copies of that software. Anyway, uh, Granger, the spokesman, uh, spokesperson continues, quote, a human procedural error during reinstallation of the software excluded a step, a step which optimizes the system database and ensures USB flash media cannot be read twice during the results loading process because the database was not optimized. The user was not notified when the USB flash media were loaded twice into the results reporting module. Okay, lot to unpack there. Allow me to do so. Uh, in, in this county, voters in this county in New Jersey, as in most counties in New Jersey, by the way, voters are forced to vote on 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. Yes, in 2023... Uh, and they are uh, they, they vote on those systems with ballots that are uh, then printed out by the computers and then tabulated by another computer, a computer scanner. The tabulations are copied from the from those scanners. The results of the tabulations are copied onto a USB stick, a, a thumb drive that you you know the type you stick into your computer to copy off uh, backups a drive, of uh, software right and those usb drives are then later on put into another machine that uploads the results to the central tabulators at county headquarters the election management software receives that information and all of the various precincts and so forth are added up uh, with you know all of the other results from all of the other precincts etc but many of these systems do not have any so-called fail-safes in place to make sure that the same USB memory stick with results on it from a precinct was not uploaded previously, allowing that to happen twice. The same results from the same precinct can be uploaded twice to the election management system and therefore counted twice. It can be be uploaded even more than twice into the uh, same election results. That appears to be what happened here. Now, there's no evidence that any of this was done on purpose uh, or nefariously, but it happened. The computers were too dumb, apparently, to notice. And now the loser of an election from back in November appears to have actually been named the winner and vice versa. Granger from the uh, voting system company ESNS said the problem occurred when a USB flash media was, quote, loaded twice into the results reporting module. Now, you would think that would be impossible, that there would be some check that would be in place to prevent that from happening. But no, 
That's how crappy these voting systems are that we've been using for years and that I've been warning about for years. The state attorney general's office uh, has advised the Board of Elections to re-canvas and recertify the results of the November 8 general election. Again, this story just came out last week, so they had to go back and re-canvas and recertify the results. Uh, Steve Clayton defeated Jeffrey Weinstein by 20 votes and uh, took office this month. But a new tally conducted last week shows Weinstein actually ahead of Clayton uh, of Clayton. And in fact, by just one single vote, Mm. the final results are unlikely to change in the three other municipalities where this uh, happened as well. Uh, where uh, elections were not quite as close, but the final numbers could be changed, according to The Globe. Clayton said, I will let the process play itself out. I'm laser focused on what the voters sent me to do. But of course, they didn't actually send him to do it. Or so it now appears by one vote. Making matters worse, the problem in Monmouth County was not detected by a post-election audit that was done initially. Voting machines from ES&S are used in about one-third of the counties in New Jersey. The Attorney General's Office, which represents all 21 county election boards, does not appear to have contacted other counties, at least as of last week or so, to advise them that the vote tabulation system in another county was flawed. So hopefully they're reading this article in the uh, New Jersey Globe. Yeah, that seems kind of rude to not tell them. Sussex County Clerk Jeff Parrott uh, told uh, the Globe, nobody has brought it to my attention. I'm disappointed and dismayed. It's unacceptable to me. Imagine that. Now, a voting system expert in the state on a list of voting system experts uh, that I participate in uh, noted that New Jersey's audit law is, quote, kind of weak ass. He said that's a technical term to distinguish it from the uh, that other technical term, RLA, which stands for risk limiting audits a protocol that is supposed to discover problems like this. So if there was an audit of the paper ballots, this expert wrote, it's entirely unsurprising that this was not detected in the first place. Now, in response to this new investigation that has finally been launched by new uh, the New Jersey Attorney General into the Monmouth County elections from 2022, where this error led to the double counting of votes in multiple towns. Senator Joe Panacchio called on the state Senate to advance uh, his legislation that would, he says, increase transparency by requiring open source voting technology. Quote, uh, Panacchio, a Republican state senator, said uh, the news coming out of Monmouth County is just another reason why we can't rely on voting machines that use proprietary software for error free results. Two years ago, he said, I introduced legislation that would dramatically increase election transparency and integrity by requiring all voting machine technology to be open source. People have the right to demand elections that are fair and honest, he said, and this bill would help restore faith in the process. Okay, what you're looking at me strangely. I know. Des. I'm thinking. Well, well having yeah. open source voting machine software would not have changed the programming error that was made by ESNS. Well, you're correct. Well, it wouldn't be made by ESNS. It would be made by necessarily whoever, whoever the open whoever right. Correct. It, yeah. So you are correct. You are absolutely correct. 
Thank you for paying attention over the last 20 <laughs> years enough to uh, hear that and go, wait, that doesn't sound right. So uh, first, I got to respond when he says, you know, that we have to help restore faith in the process. Our elections are not built on faith. They're not built on trust. Uh, or at least they shouldn't be. They are they are built on or should be built on oversight, public oversight to provide confidence to the public that results are accurate. Confidence, not trust, not faith. These are not or at least they should not be faith based voting systems. And to that end, open source software that that many more people could inspect uh, inspect the code on to make sure that there are no errors in that code. Well, in one sense, that is almost a no-brainer. If we're going to use computers in our elections, the system should not be a proprietary one, should not be proprietary software, proprietary to some private company. So, yeah, the more transparency, the better. However, as, as Desi sort of uh, figured out, open source in and of itself is not a panacea for these problems. And I do have some concerns that some people may believe that it is. Some people perhaps like Republican State Senator Pinocchio, Joe Pinocchio. And I don't know him. I haven't talked to him. Maybe he's a good guy. Maybe he does understand this. Um, but, you know, for one, the same error that occurred in Monmouth County could also have occurred in an open source system, just mm. as you point out. Okay. Desi. It, it doesn't in and of itself prevent that coding error from happening. Moreover, while open sources swell, there's no real easy way to know that the open source code that was examined by someone, hopefully in the public on Monday, is actually the code that is in use on those machines on Tuesday during the election. Third, if it is the same code that was inspected on Monday, you can still have ballot programming errors or malfeasance, either, you know, errors or on purpose. That can still screw up an election on open source software, since no matter the system software that is used, officials actually have to create more code that tells the voting system software where the candidates are on this particular ballot. And if you flip the names of candidates in a race such that people think they are voting for candidate A, but they're actually casting a vote for candidate B because of the way the ballot has been defined, that may be very difficult to notice after an election. That is kind of my worst nightmare. And open source will not necessarily help that case. Finally, I do have some concern that people will think because they have open source on their voting systems, well, nothing can go wrong now because we got rid of that proprietary software. Now it's all open. It's transparent. That is completely untrue. And I do have some concerns that it will give folks a, a sort of a false sense of security. Other than that, uh, yeah, the more transparency is always better than less transparency. So if we must use computers to tally our ballots or, as they do in New Jersey, to actually cast those ballots and print those ballots, then sure, of course, the systems should be open source. Now, Pinocchio's bill, S-238, would require also would require 
paper ballots for in-person voters and mandate the use of open source code for software controlling optical scanners used to record the votes. This is according to Insider NJ's report. So I just need to note here, I looked at Pinocchio's bill and uh, the, the one that calls for open source, and that is fine. And though it would require paper ballots for all voters, uh, it doesn't actually require hand-marked paper ballots. So New Jersey, uh, unless I'm missing something in this bill, could still use the same 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, the one that print the ones that print out a paper ballot in such a way that we can't know if it actually reflects the intent of the voter after an election. They could still use those touchscreens. This uh, systems print out their paper ballot rather than being required to allow voters to simply and verifiably hand mark a paper ballot the easy way. So according to this bill, as long as those touchscreen systems are open source code, then they're just fine. I disagree. They're not fine. What would be fine is a hand marked paper ballot. And if we need to count them with a computer, fine, count them with a computer. But uh, let's have at least some of them checked in every race by human beings so we don't have the problem uh, that was discovered months uh, after the election in, uh, in November in New Jersey. We are now entering our 20th year at bradblog.com, where I have been trying to make these points for the past 19 years. But the good news is that slowly everyone uh-huh. has been moving in your direction. So yeah. there's that. A little too slowly. Yes. It may take another 20 years. Either way, (laughs) I think we'll be at this a while. Speaking of stuff that is going to take a while, Desi Doyen joins us for our latest Green (laughs) News report. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, there's a lot of terrible news uh, as we start out the show with, you know, uh, the doomsday clock and uh, the war in in Ukraine and so forth. And I know we're going to talk about the doomsday clock a little bit uh, in in a moment again. There's a lot of terrible news out there. And I do know that, you know, talk radio and and social media, that it's all about ticking people off and making them angry. I get it. When we do that a lot on this show, uh, not because of the algorithm, but just because that's what we have to work with. On the other hand, there is also good news that happens at the same time. As you try to pull together (laughs) in our latest Green News Report. What happens in the oceans doesn't stay in the oceans. Spate of new studies finds climate impacts are escalating. Forest Service bans logging in Alaskan rainforest again. Plus, it is now 
90 seconds to midnight. Scientists move metaphoric doomsday clock closer to catastrophe. All of that metaphoric doomsday and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Xbox has also announced they're going woke too, and mm. you know, because of climate change, mm-hmm. that they're adding a new feature to their default setting. And it will turn off after so long to save the environment, the power. It automatically turns off when you're not using it to save energy and save you money? Sounds terrible, Fox News. That's going woke? I'd say don't change, but I know you never will. This is your Green News Report. Ted Cruz writes on Twitter, first gas stoves, then your coffee, now you're gunning for my Xbox. <laughs> Isn't it crazy, though? Okay, Desi Doyen, let the metaphorical doomsday begin. (laughs) Yes, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moved the doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight this week. That's the closest that the metaphoric measure of existential threats to humanity has ever been to disaster. Board member Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, said the new clock time reflects increased nuclear risks from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, of course, climate. The illegal invasion of a sovereign state by a nuclear-armed permanent member of the UN Security Council, together with the acceleration of the climate crisis, explains why the clock has now been moved even closer to midnight. Well, we know why it's been moved closer to midnight. Only question is, what the hell is anyone going to do about it? The scientists also cited the lingering pandemic and the breakdown of global norms and the institutions needed to address risks as putting humanity at greater risk of self-destruction. Other than that, everything is fine. And a series of recent studies this month underscore the escalating dangers of man-made global warming. First, researchers with Carnegie Mellon University found that the world's glaciers are shrinking and disappearing faster than predicted, so much so that even if governments meet ambitious global climate targets, the world is still likely to lose half of its glaciers by 2100, with substantial impacts on global sea levels and population migration. Mm. A second study has found that the oceans last year were the hottest ever recorded since comprehensive records began in the 1950s. It also confirmed ocean warming has accelerated since 1990. The oceans absorb about 90 percent of the excess heat trapped by humanity's greenhouse gas emissions. It matters because hotter oceans turbocharge extreme weather like hurricanes, torrential rains and floods, increase sea level rise and affect rainfall patterns on land. As lead study author, climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann, told MSNBC. Worsened drought, worsened heat, uh, greater heat, uh, worse floods, superstorms. This is the face of climate change. It's not subtle. It's not far away. The impacts are being felt by us now on so- a daily basis. It's simply a matter of how bad we're willing to let it get. And it's not just the oceans. A new study this week reports exceptional warming in Greenland, with the Greenland ice sheet hitting its hottest temperature in 1,000 years. The eastern horn of Africa just saw an unprecedented fifth straight year of failed rains, making it the longest and most severe drought in 70 years of precipitation data. I thought you said this doomsday was supposed to be metaphorical. 
But there is some encouraging news. Oh, nice. Full data from 2022 is not in yet, but according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, it appears that last year was the first year in which the U.S. got more electricity from renewables than from coal. Globally, the world appears to have reached peak fossil fuels for electricity, with wind and solar now the cheapest sources of electricity for 96% of the world's population, according to nonprofit group Rocky Mountain Institute. And finally, great news, the U.S. Forest Service has banned logging and mining development in more than half of Alaska's Tongass National Forest. The action reverses a Trump-era rollback and reinstates the roadless rule for the Tongass, one of the largest temporary rainforests in the world. It also ends large-scale logging across the entire Tongass, ensuring it continues to provide critical habitat for birds, wildlife, and salmon, and preserves the capacity of the ancient forest to absorb a significant chunk of humanity's carbon emissions. Well, that seals it. With all that good news, I'm moving that clock back a few seconds. <laughs> for much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, the Twitters, and the Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I, I think we turned back time just by playing that song from yes. Cher, if you want to know the truth. Uh, you had one more story that was... Uh, yeah, that uh, came some, uh, in too late for today's Green News Report. But more good news, right? It is excellent good. news for Bring Minnesota it. and for literally everyone. Uh, the Biden administration interior department has issued a, a decision that is going to protect the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness in Minnesota from mining for 20 years. Wow. And that action, which is the most that it can at this point under law, the action revokes a mining and water pollution permit that the Trump administration had granted mm. to a foreign mining company. Um, officials said that a foreign the, mining company. Oh, yeah. Still, so yeah. the revenue would have gone yeah. out of state, out of the country. Yeah. But in, in other words, the uh, uh, Biden administration, they looked at it. They said that the toxic tailings and the mine waste would mm-hmm. lead, to, lead to unacceptable levels of toxic pollution in the watershed. And it's, you know, basically it's the wrong place for a mine, this area. Gotcha. So, Nice. Thank you for yeah. uh, and it's not always additional it, good news. Yeah, and it's not just a victory for people and for clean water. It's also a victory for Native American tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, Interior Secretary Deb Holland said, there is only one boundary waters. It should be enjoyed by and protected for everyone today and for generations to come. Nice. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. And my thanks to all of you as well for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by folks like you, listeners uh, and readers like you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. We are off on the next Bradcast, but we will be back thereafter. Don't worry. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1921. That was the day Sid Hatfield and 22 other defendants went on trial for the murder of Detective Albert Feltz. Hatfield was chief of police in Matewan, West Virginia, when the United Mine Workers came to Mingo County to organize coal workers. The Stone Mountain Coal Company moved to smash union activity. They brought in Baldwin Feltz detectives to evict union miners from company housing. Hatfield supported the miners' right to organize and urged locals to arm themselves. He confronted the detectives at the train depot as they were leaving town for the evening about the evictions they had just carried out. The detectives presented Hatfield with a phony arrest warrant. Surrounded by armed miners, a gun battle ensued, leaving at least seven detectives and four townspeople dead in what is referred to as the Matewan Massacre. The trial was set in the Mingo County seat of Williamson, where Baldwin Feltz agents lined the streets to intimidate those sympathetic to Hatfield and the others. The prosecution hoped to prove that Feltz's murder was premeditated and used the testimony of paid spies who had previously attempted to gain Hatfield's trust and friendship. According to historian James Green, author of The Devil is Here in These Hills, the ACLU had advised defense attorneys to turn the trial into a prosecution of the coal operators by introducing in evidence the entire record of their conspiracy to deny the citizens of West Virginia of their legal rights. The defense successfully discredited these paid agents and won acquittal. When Hatfield and his deputies arrived back in Matewan, they were greeted as heroes by the entire town. Hatfield, however, had a target on his back and would be gunned down a year later, sparking a coal war which ended with the Battle of Blair Mountain. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.